I believe that if we are honest with ourselves, that the most fascinating problem in the world is who am I? Welcome to Behind the Mind. Join Meredith Krenmar as she chats one-on-one with intriguing, inspirational and imaginative people from Australia and across the globe. In this series of candid interviews, she seeks to discover the zigzagging journeys, pivotal events, daring risks and momentous moments that fundamentally helped form the way they think and work today. Today, I am joined by Matt Jones. I'm very fascinated to learn more about you. You've had some massive zigs and zags in your career, seemingly. Big fan of your gin. I'm sure it seems totally inappropriate. We're recording on a Friday afternoon that we're not having a gin, but I'm thinking that might be an occupational hazard for you. Yes or no? It is. You would think that over 10 years of doing Four Pillars, I've drunk consistently more year on year, but I think I'm moderating my consumption. That said, as you say, after three on a Friday, this does feel like a mess. But anyway, so big fan, big fan of the craft of your beautiful gin. I probably do the wrong thing with the bloody Shiraz. I have it just with soda water and a slice of orange. It's too sweet. I don't know. You know, when you feel like sometimes you're like, is that that an abortion of somebody's like craft? But you know, that's how I enjoy it. So Mel, welcome to Behind the Mind. Thank you so much for being on the show. I, we have something in common though, because I run a brand experience agency called Because and you, started, well not started, midpoint career, you had a bit of a pivotal event joining Jack Morton's. We'll talk about your political career Mm. and those sort of transitions, but you know, you worked in experiential marketing and arguably I think, you know, Four Pillars is one of Australia's, if not one of the world's best experience brands. Tell me more about that time and what you learned from that. Yeah, I, I feel that as you've alluded to, there's lots of moments in my career where I've made jumps that were perhaps unexpected in that moment, but in hindsight, they've all joined together. And certainly one of the pivotal ones was was going into this world of brand experience. I'd not worked in marketing or, or brand before. I, I was actually casting around for something to do. I'd just moved to Australia from the UK and I'd had a fairly depressing six, seven months of doing some freelance work. And I was about to take a job that I clearly wasn't motivated to take. So I was still looking at the job ads, which is always a sign that maybe you're about to take the wrong leap. And I read this ad and every sentence just spoke to me. And I'm like, that's what I do. That's what I do. That's what I'm good at. That's what I like. And I sort of go back to the top of the ad and it said creative director. I'm like, I've got no idea what a creative director does, but (laughs) I think all the other words fit. So I phoned the recruiter and I obviously just got incredibly lucky. Maybe it was also after three on a Friday and he was into a gin. I don't know (laughs) because... He wasn't the kind of recruiter who went, well, you don't fit any of the criteria, therefore I'm not passing you on. He said, well, there's something interesting about your story. I don't think you're a creative director, but maybe you could be an account director. So the following week, I find myself being interviewed by an agency I'd never heard of. I probably had never heard of any advertising agencies apart from you know Saatchi and Saatchi, but an agency called Jack Morton interviewed as an account director. The head of client service said, well, you're clearly not an account director because you can't sell, but there's something interesting about you as well. So come back and meet the managing director. And she was this amazing woman called Tara Back, actually the account director, the, the client service director, now runs both Jack Morton and Weber Shamwick, a brilliant woman called Helen Graney. She introduced me to Tara. Tara these days runs events and experiences globally for Google. She's pretty incredible. So we talk, we meet, and a couple of weeks later, I get made their first ever head of strategy in Australia. And I very quickly have to understand what does an experience agency do? Jack Morton at the time, there were two really interesting things. You know, one was 
they're an event company of 60 plus years standing that was trying to figure out how to move into this sort of experiential space. They came from trade shows, from B2B conferences, from very much the corporate end of town. But what they could see changing was this fragmentation of the media landscape. Now, remember, this is 2006. Yeah. So when we talk about media fragmenting, it had only just begun. It was true tip of the iceberg stuff. You know, we don't have, the iPhone hasn't launched yet. Very few of us have Facebook accounts. Social media isn't really a thing. But even then, this sense of all of us watching the finale of Cheers or watching the same TV show, that was gone and brands were looking for different ways to connect. And so at Jax, we started to talk to people about perhaps what you do and how you do it and how you show up matters a little bit more than what you say through advertising. And so we were trying to build a, a consumer business and whether you call it experiential marketing or experience marketing or brand experience, that's what we did. And, and so that took me from Australia to New York and I spent six years doing that. And the last thing I'll say about that that was just so formative was I was really with Jax from 2006 to 2012. And I think that was the inflection point of social media becoming a thing. Yeah. And with that combination of radical transparency, empowering consumers, changing the way that media and content and ideas got distributed, with that, I think all bets were off in terms of how brands got built. And I'm certainly not going to claim that I had it all figured out then, but I came back from New York, had a baby in New York, came back to Australia in 2012, very much thinking this brand landscape is going to be different. And what I thought I was going to do about it was set up my own little consultancy to look at purpose. And I did that. What I didn't know I was going to do about it was end up making gin and, and actually building that gin brand based, I guess, on a lot of the principles that had started to formulate in that really interesting time. Did you back yourself the whole time when you were sort of stumbling because, you know, you felt the words of the ad, you obviously connected with you. And then you had these, you know, a great recruiter who can make those leaps between things. Like, did you have full confidence in your abilities or was it just a, I'm going to figure this shit out? I listened to a podcast the other day. It was Diary of a CEO, which, you know, I enjoy some of the, the people he chats to. And it was about optimism. And interestingly, in the last few years, I feel that I've built a reputation in, in the four pillars business as a bit of a, a pessimist sometimes. You know, it's hard when you're responding to things like COVID. It's hard to not sometimes sound like you're a bit of a, you know, a doomsayer. <laughs> you know, how, how, how can you not be? But my fundamental predisposition tends to be optimistic. And, and this podcast really resonated because it was about this sort of optimistic bias, which doesn't mean this blind belief that things will go well. It's more this belief that if you apply yourself, probably on average, it will go well. So in the case of approaching Jack Morton, I think I had that combination of humility to know I know nothing about this. I remember going to Dimmocks on Pitt Street and just raiding the brand marketing section. And the book that just got me was The Brand Gap by Martin Neumeyer. And then I started reading lots of Seth Godin. And I found all these fascinating people who were saying things about the world and how brands get built and marketing. And I was pretty good at digesting that and forming my own views on that. So I had the humility to know what I didn't know, but I also had the confidence to back myself as a communicator and a storyteller and a sense maker go, okay, I'm going to apply that to this. And I was lucky enough that in my second interview, the guys at Jack's gave me a challenge and they threw three brands at me and said, we're going to go to a new business meeting next week, come up with a strategy to go and win business off all three. And that played to my strengths because I could go away and go, right, how do I apply my intelligence and, and the experience I've had in this old life in politics and what I've read and just, just think 
hopefully clearly and go back and say something compelling to them. So I think it was that combination of, of confidence in my abilities, but also that humility to know what do I not know and how do I quickly invest the effort to fill that gap? So obviously you found yourself in politics in 97, which was a wild time because that was the Spice Girls. Yep. It was also a much better group called Daft Punk. I'm massive late into music. You were the youngest member of the writer or something. Conservative. Oh, I mean, how do you feel like this? Like, you know, was that, it seems like you're a bit of a social chameleon kind of thing that you can move through different worlds. Like, how did that all come about? And what did you learn? Because that was the Blair era as well. It was the Blair era. So I... I've probably got to take half a step back and kind of go back to to my schooling. So when I was in sixth form in the UK, or sort of year 11 and 12 over here, I started studying economics. And I found economics completely fascinating. I found it a really fascinating lens on the world. So very quickly, that's what I was going to go and do at university. I was going to study economics. And I found it interesting both from that sort of mathematical point of view, but that also deeper social science and sociological and political point of view. The challenge was... Having grown up in the, in the Thatcher years as a kid and grew up in a very normal, low middle class family. My mother was a teacher. My dad was in business. I probably leaned center right. Yeah. Because my one lens on politics, my formative lens was economic. I thought, well, what do I believe? I think I believe in enterprise. I think I believe in business. I think I believe in less regulation, not more. I that think sounds I, good. all, all yeah. that stuff sounds really good, right? So. Then I don't think again politically. I go to university, I study economics, and I get tapped on the shoulder just before I leave and, and said, would you want to go for an interview in London? And it turned out the interview was for a role in military intelligence. And it was to go and be an economic advisor in the defense intelligence staff, which is the effectively the Ministry of Defense's sort of buddy department to MI6, to the, the Secret Intelligence Services. So it was this fascinating world where I was able to be this total child, this 21-year-old, raw, not very good economist, getting to study countries that were considered threat countries, but from an economic point of view. And you're interested in things like, will country X still be able to pay military pensions? Or will they stop paying pensions because they run out of money and that means there's likely to be a coup? Will country Y be able to fund their missile development program next year? And all of that data would go into intelligence reports that would go all the way up eventually to the cabinet and the prime minister. And as a 21, 22-year-old, I was getting invited to these committees over at the cabinet office that would write these papers. And I was getting exposed to all these senior people from around Whitehall and we'd sit around a table and we would wrestle with what our insights were, what our analysis was. And what I realized I loved was I wasn't at all good at the economics. I was really quite good at the communication, at the formulation of arguments and analysis. And then I got a bit lucky again. I got tapped on the shoulder again. And over in the treasury, the guy who ran the Russia desk had just lost his number two. And the number two on the Russia desk studied everything the guy on the Russia desk didn't want to study, which was the rest of the Soviet Union and also, for some reason, the former Yugoslavia. So I go and I have to start covering all of those economies in the treasury. And the war in Kosovo breaks out. And all of a sudden, across Whitehall, we have to put together a task force to look at how we're going to rebuild the economy of Kosovo post-war. So I start flying to Brussels with the then Chancellor Gordon Brown, and I'm giving advice to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. I'm still now 22 about what does Britain do and what's our stance on Kosovo. This is wild. And 
I don't think I was very good at any of it except the words bit. Yeah. I was really good at the words. And so I'd be over, you know, having arguments with the guys at the Foreign Office and the Department for International Development and go, I could really hold my own. Yeah. I could really hold my own as a communicator. Did you find someone- it interesting? Because you strike me as when you're talking about going into Dimmicks and getting yeah. the book, you strike me as a person who is fascinated and is a sponge for what you're into. Did I you gen- I really love the back cover and the first chapter of a business book. Okay. And at that stage, I've then got I've got the central insight, I've got the idea, and what I enjoy is applying that. And yeah. so I think there I I was good enough at the core of my job to be able to go in and then advocate for a position, for an argument, for a point of view. But what I really enjoyed was the deploying of that skill set. Anyway, the boring life bit is is around that time. I meet my now wife. She's Australian. I take a working holiday in Australia. After 12 months, I come back to London. And I don't go back into the civil service role. I sort of look around and I find myself in politics and I joined, and this is why I had to take that detour, I joined the Conservative Party. Yeah. And at the time, the Conservative Party was in total crisis. And what I didn't know, which I know now, is their crisis was a brand crisis, but I didn't have that as part of my vocabulary then. What I found was a new leader, a guy called Ian Duncan Smith. He'd taken over from a guy called William Haig. William Haig had been thrashed by Tony Blair in the 2001 election. The Conservatives were still in denial in that way that most political parties have been in power for 18 years are, which is the problem isn't us. Well, it turns out the problem was really them. The problem was was a brand problem. The, the conservative brand was utterly broken. That sense of trust between them and their core voter had gone. They needed to rebuild. Generally, political parties go through these long periods of denial. They say, oh, the problem must have been policy. We yeah. just didn't have the right policies on X, Y, Z. So they're in exactly this mode of those phases of political grief. And so they'd set up a new policy unit and they'd hired all these very expensive, intelligent ex-KPMG McKinsey consultants. And then they'd run out of budget. They had a tiny bit of money left, so they hired me. So I'm like this (laughs) this very low paid kid now in this newly formed policy unit. And our job is to come up with policies that will win the next election. And so over to my right is a guy doing healthcare policy. So he's off flying around Europe, looking at different healthcare systems and building policy. To my left is someone doing the same for education. And I got given transport. And I knew nothing about transport and I start researching. And and again, I'm no good at this at all. But it turned out that the thing the party really cared about was the weekly prime minister's questions. Mm -hmm. And I started to become really good at researching things that the government, that the Blair government had promised and promises they'd broken on transport, railway lines that they'd promised to build that they hadn't built, rail delays they'd promised to fix that they hadn't fixed, roads they were supposed to be doing things with that they hadn't done. So I started to become really good at creating these little bullets for Prime Minister's questions. So I started to get invited to go and be part of Prime Minister's questions prep. I then started getting invited to write economic speeches. I got moved again. I got tapped on the shoulder. There was a vacancy to head up the economic section in the conservative research department, which is a pretty good position. It was a pretty, you know, significant, influential position. So I started to work with the shadow chancellor, a really incredible, talented guy called Michael Howard. I started to write Michael's speeches. Theresa May, who would go on to be prime minister, I started to write her speeches with a with a wonderful partner of mine, Chris Wilkins, who now runs an incredible communications agency back in the UK. And so Chris and I start writing speeches for everyone in the party. And we get promoted and promoted. I end up becoming the chief political advisor to the Conservative Party. And I'm still 
well in my 20s, nowhere near my 30s. So I think that's why my bio says youngest ever, because I don't think anyone's ever been so foolish as to give that position to someone who's never even seen their party in government and has yet to win any form of election campaign. But what I think had finished there was that journey from being someone who was paid to be across the substance as an economic advisor, as a policy analyst and advisor, into someone whose practice was really the communication of the substance, the storytelling of it, the crafting of narrative, the crafting of messaging. Effectively, I'd started as a logic guy and and I'd shifted into being an emotion guy. I'd started with the substance and I'd shifted into persuasion. So that's why the advertisement for Jack Morton's being like a creative director would have, you would have been like, I I read that. That's what I do. And maybe in a parallel universe, I would have grown up as an advertising copywriter, but I hadn't. But I'd made that journey. I still didn't have the language of advertising agencies and brand marketing at that stage, but maybe the practice had begun, the skill set was building. How did you feel through that time when you're sort of progressing in the party? You obviously knew you had something kind of thing and you were starting to see where your skill set were, but did you feel confident that whole time or were you blagging it or was it just, again, just optimism that you sort of like one step? Because I think when often when you hear successful people talk, you think that they have got this trajectory completely mapped out and it was, you know, it was always going to be that way. But sometimes I think it's, you know, one step leads to another step and it's, it's, it's just, there is a self-belief there. Yes. And I'm going to answer that. I'm going to take a tiny quick detour first because we're recording this, what are we, like two days after International Women's Day? I do reflect on, you know, I've got a daughter who's just turned 13. I really hope that she grows up with the same level of fundamental self-belief that I think I was lucky to have and I think I was lucky to have in part because of my gender. And I think we need to rebalance that. I think too many men overestimate their abilities and too many incredibly talented women underestimate their abilities. And I don't know how we fix that. I think it has to be at a fundamental educational, cultural I think they say it starts around nine that girls start to become. And I think there's some, uh, only because my children are heading, I'm big in this time period of my life, but I don't think there's a complete understanding of why girls start to lose confidence at that point. Because you know, it's something I'm so fascinated with and it's why I've joined the board of my daughter's school because I want to support them as a girls' school that, that is fostering young women who go on to be confident, empathetic, creative leaders and don't hide their lights under a under a bushel with false modesty. So, so this is my long-winded way of going, look, I think I felt pretty confident. Yeah. I think the blagging it period was when I was trying to pretend to be a good economist, okay. which is when I was trying to pretend to be a policy expert or a policy analyst. Once my value was really being determined by my ability to offer wise counsel around messaging and storytelling and political strategy, which is really brand strategy and persuasion, even though I maybe didn't know why I felt so confident, I think I felt on more solid ground. And the other thing, you know, you've got to acknowledge there is regardless of your political persuasion, an environment like that, the conservative research department at that time was just full of the most unbelievably talented and intelligent people. So any gap that you had, any knowledge gap, it was there to be filled. So you could then really focus on going on what, not what's my deficit, but what's the value that I add. And so I think I did probably feel pretty quickly confident that I was adding value, even if I didn't quite know why yet. The jigsaw puzzle of teams. And I mean, amazing that you're in an environment where 
your true skills and abilities, you know, started to shine and continue to flourish kind of thing. Did anything go wrong in that period? Any momentous moments that you think, boy, I wish that I could do that again? Oh, there was enormous amount of immaturity. I think, you know, that's probably true for many of us, but you definitely look back and you cringe sometimes at the ways you you carried yourselves in in particular meetings. You know, I remember once being hauled in front of one of the senior politicians that we were writing speeches for, and I was just so angry about some other advice coming in about why he shouldn't say that. And you look back and you go, why did you take it so personally? Why did you respond in such a an emotional way? But it's a very high pitch environment politics. I think the other thing that I really reflect on is, and this was probably true as well from my experience in Jack Morton, and it's probably now only with 10 years of four pillars under my belt that I can see this most clearly. You're often only looking at part of the system that delivers success, and you become really fixated on doing a great job in your part, your cog in the system. And potentially you undervalue the importance of other cogs, yeah. of other pieces. And so, you know, I was there in political sort of campaigning headquarters, probably didn't value the feet on the pavement yeah. and what was happening at the last, you know, the last three feet yeah. as much as I should have done. And so then I'd sometimes go out and work on, on by-election campaigns. And all of a sudden you realize this is hyper-local and this local voter does not care about your national manifesto and your national policy positions and your national brand. They care about stuff that's super local. And so, you know, I think if I had my time again or if I'd done another five years, perhaps I'd have invested more in understanding how this campaigning political brand work up here was Translates. actually translating down. To the street. And I think it's so fascinating because I think as experienced people, when you've got an experienced brand, I think always removing yourself from, you know, your Ivory Tower, Gin Palace, whatever you want to call it. Like speaking and, and talking to real people, and I often say that to my team when we go out to our events, that make no mistake, these are real people. These are the real customers of this client, you know, and you live in the Northern Beaches, you know, like this is, you're not looking down on this person. These are really the people that we're marketing to. So I think that whole becoming that awareness of that, you know, that what you do is pretty small and that list, that ability to listen and, you know, and, and, and act on those mm. insights is huge. I think you're absolutely right. I think the other... I guess mistake that I feel in hindsight I probably made, and maybe it was a good mistake to make because maybe you just have to do this stuff and it's not about kind of looking back and, oh, I'd have done things differently. But I think I really enjoyed rubbing people up the wrong way at that time. <laughs> you know, it, it was it was an environment that was very staid, very conservative. You know, the clue was in the name of the party. Very quickly, I realized that although I might have been economically aligned. Mm. I was not socially aligned with most of the people I was working with, certainly not with a lot of the people I was advising. And I thought that was okay because where I was, was where the median voter was. Yeah. So my attitudes to public services, to healthcare, to education, my attitudes to Europe, my attitudes to gay marriage or whatever we want to get onto were probably much more indicative of where the median voter, the swing voter was. So I was comfortable 
that I was in this party pulling it to the center. In fact, I would fight for the right of anyone to represent a party that I disagreed with, particularly if their agenda was to moderate. Yeah, We need people who moderate on all sides of politics. Most sensible, balanced decision-making happens somewhat in the center. The challenge is we're in a culture where everything gets pushed to wild, polarized extremes. So I was comfortable that I was quickly becoming a, a moderating influence that would pull to the center. But I think I relished how much friction and discomfort that created. I don't think I was as sophisticated as an operator as I would have been 10 years later. I didn't realize that to bring people with me, perhaps I had to befriend them and create comfort and take them with me rather than show them how different I was and how different my ideas were and, and create conflict. And I think that probably speaks to that that immaturity where if you had your time again. Yeah. Might- and I think you're absolutely right because you can't turn back time. But I think it's more, sometimes there's moments where you're like, oh, it's a bit of a dickhead then. And I often think of, you know, situations that I've had with people that I'm like, if I saw them on the street, I wouldn't do like the, you know, shame kind of, I, I would say, hey, you know, remember when we had that skiffuffle, I, you know, regret that. And then most people then turn around and say, do you know what? I didn't even remember it. It's yeah. fine. But I think it's just part of emotional maturity, isn't it? Like recognizing that, you know, you're constantly evolving. You've taken risks in that, but I guess the biggest risk that, you know, did it feel like a big risk starting Four Pillars? It, no. And I can probably put my finger in a minute on where the biggest risk moment came. But the start didn't because I think we were lucky. And I guess every startup story is different, right? You can have a a little technology business that requires almost no capital, just requires a genius, and it's three 22-year-olds in a bedroom, and you know they've got no great commitments and not great financial outgoings, and they can just throw themselves at it and maybe make something magical and you know build a unicorn business. And then you've got one like ours that you know was three middle-aged, you know at the time. I was in my late 30s during Canberra in their 40s. We were all already, you know, we were pre-balled, you know. And so we've all got young families and got commitments, got other things we had to do. But also with that came experience and relationships and you were able to bring a lot more to it. And so I guess with all of that balance, Stu had a business, he was running a PR agency. I had a business, I was running a small brand consultancy. Cameron was working in wine and we all just started to step into the Four Pillars business as much as it needed us. So Stu and I really just invested sweat for the first two years. We didn't take a day's salary. Cameron quite quickly needed to be a day a week, then two days a week, then three days a week. And then very quickly, like, Cameron has to do this full time. Stu and I could be slower, but we could draw on the relationships we have. We could draw on the capabilities in our own agencies. So I think there was a little bit of bet hedging. Yeah. Not to the point where it was ever, where the quality was negotiable. But what we didn't do, and I think there's an interesting insight here, what we didn't do was sort of make it impossible for it to fail. Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is instead of that leading us to a sort of a, you know, a half in, half out, half committed, instead it led us to be completely committed, but completely committed to quality. Yeah. So we made a couple of other decisions. We we quickly realized this is not a tech business. We need bricks and mortar. We need a physical still, basically a big copper kettle from Germany. We had to have a, a Christian Carl still. Like every time when we were doing our sort of fact-finding missions and Stu and Cam went to the States and they went up and down the, the West Coast and they went to about 30 different distilleries, like every time a gin, 
blew us away. It was being made in a Carl still, this, this incredible still maker just outside of Stuttgart. So we have to have one of those. It's going to take about a year to commission ours. It's going to cost us well north of a quarter of a million dollars. It'd be a lot more these days. Okay, we're going to need some money in the bank. And so we went and we found 20 small-scale investors. We called them gin investors because we certainly hadn't become very original with, with our messaging at that time. And we made sure we had a little bit of a war chest. Yeah. And we said, okay, well, why do we exist? Why, if this is successful, if Matt's sitting doing a podcast in 10 years' time, what will that be because of? And we said, well, it would be because we are making incredible gin. Because yeah. we are making gin that truly does justice to Australia. Because what we know, we know two things. We know one, pretty much no one wakes up every day back in 2013 and thinks, I wish there was a world-class Australian gin. And yet we also know that gin is booming, that yeah. Hendrix is changing gin, and that Australia is fundamentally more delicious than Scotland. <laughs> and so if the gin that is commanding, and this is, this is a true stat, more than 60% of super premium gin in 2013 in Australia was Hendrix. Yeah. More than six out of 10 of every bottle sold were one brand with one product. You're like, there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity and gin can taste of place. Gin is juniper. If it's not juniper, it's weird vodka. But once you've built on a canvas of distilled juniper, you can go for it. Yeah. So if the place you're distilling gives you unbelievable natural, indigenous botanicals, incredible fresh citrus, gives you Shiraz grapes, gives you olives, gives you incredible climate and sunshine, incredible water, you're going to make really delicious gin if you get up every day, not focused on being great marketers, not focused on being great salespeople, but being great gin makers. So what we made sure with that real clarity of purpose and focus is we would have enough money in the bank to give it a really good go, but never shortcutting the quality of the product, never offering to make a little contract gin white label on the side for someone We're else, focused. never getting distracted by rum or vodka or whiskey, saying, well, if you're going to be the best in the world at something, the consumer is smart. And if they can see that you're also doing other things, well, by definition, you could have been better at that something if you'd spent all of your time. You know, if someone came to you and said, you know what? I'm going to be an Olympic athlete. Cameron was an Olympic athlete, so he knows what it takes. They say, I'm going to be an Olympic athlete and I'm going to train two days a week, but the other three days a week, I'm going to do this and another two days, I'm going to do that. You're going to go, you're not going to make the Olympics. No. The girl who trains seven days a week is, going to, is the one who's going to make the Olympics. So for us, we said our seven day a week mission has to just be to make the best gym we can. So by putting together that war chest, by putting together that funding, by being realistic about what we were doing, knowing that it was quality that would define us, but also Stu and I having these other things that we were doing, I think we somewhat de-risked it for ourselves, yeah. but we had this absolute clarity of if it's going to work, It'll it's be going to be yeah. because it's amazing. Yeah. Not because it's got a beautiful label and all the things right. that when, you know, you've worked in marketing, when there's so many products, you look at the backstory, you're like, hmm, you say this, not really. And I think even more importantly, because actually we did feel that if we're going to build on craft and we're going to build on quality, then to use the language that you and I share, we need to build on experience and tactility and aesthetics and every touch point needs to speak to that same craft that we've invested in the gin because I can't force you 
to watch us make gin. We did then invest, and we'll talk about that in a minute, in creating a home where people could watch us make gin. That was the critical decision, but we couldn't force people to. So we had to make sure that the, the semiotics of the brand, the symbolism of the brand always spoke to that. What we didn't want to do was be quickly successful because we were commercially aggressive, because we discounted, because we we failed to build world-class liquid and a world-class brand. We really wanted to be successful on those terms or not successful at and all. This is where your war chest of your previous experiences to be able to also hold your nerve in that situation of like, you know, we you, you could have been probably more aggressive maybe with your growth by doing some of those tactics, but you know, that pursuit of being the best quality, not taking the shortcuts. And I think that, you know, so many people think things happen always overnight or want them to happen overnight. And, it, you know, it's easy to look at other people's, I call it other people's yoga mat. And I'm like, stick to your, stick to your own sort of yoga mat. And as long as, you know, you're doing your best downward dog that you possibly can, you know, you're going to win in the end. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's true. And, and that was one inbuilt advantage. And the other was Cameron was just this incredibly, determined, pragmatic maker of things. And it turned out one of the things that he could make and quickly became, well, he is the reigning master distiller of the year worldwide. He's currently the reigning best gin maker in the world. And we've known that for years. He's extraordinary. But the other inbuilt advantages is we had, you know, we always say, Stu, you know, Cameron makes gin, Stu makes noise, really Stu builds relationships and he yeah. knocks down doors and he makes things happen. And my job is to try and make sense of it for the consumer yeah, through storytelling, through design. And so not only did we have that war chest of prior experience and hopefully a bit of, you know, a few more wrinkles and battle scars and all those things, but also these capabilities that you could bring and therefore build something quite unique and strong on many angles, not just the quality of the liquid. What do you guys fall out over? If anything, you've obviously got some big characters, but you are clearly complementary to each other. And, you know, you st- sounds like you stick to your yoga mats. Yeah, that's a good question. I think we have quite different... Back to your point of friction. There's a couple of things, right? So we, when we tried to draw up, we, we did a second sort of little fundraise in 2015. We pretty much went back to the same investors and said, guys, this is going really well but we completely underestimated how quickly it was going to grow. So we need to put some more money in the business. It's a really good news story. We think you're going to want to go again and do it. And we're going to go again and do it. And we did. We brought a few other small investors in, but for the most part, the family stayed together and we grew. But what we had to do there was draw up what for me felt like a very sophisticated information memorandum and business strategy. And I remember trying to articulate our leadership model. We just drew a triangle. We said, well, look, we have been inspired by an author called Rich Carlgaard who wrote a book called The Soft Edge. And in his model, every business is kind of built on this sort of this sort of operational base and this strategic edge and then the soft edge. And he really emphasizes the soft edge of design and aesthetics and storytelling and culture and all the stuff that I love that that comes from your and my sort of shared belief and experiences. And we said, okay, well, what are our edges? And really there's the craft edge and that's Cameron's. There's the relationship edge. And then there's this soft edge of brand and design. And so I think in terms of inhabiting those edges, all of us being able to contribute, you know, Stu had run a consumer PR agency. He knew yeah. a lot about marketing, a lot about brand building. Cameron had worked in wine in all sorts of roles, including sales and marketing. So he had strong views on marketing. He's an incredibly creative guy. He also had strong views on how to get distributors to work well. So there was real like respect and adjacency and overlap, but also we all had 
our zones. I think the two causes of friction, the first was getting to the point where we realized we needed to be building on a fourth edge. The triangle needed to become a square and that fourth edge needed to become commercial. We timed it beautifully, I believe. In the (laughs) early days, I think that commercial edge would have made us too quickly aware of where money was getting spent and money was getting lost. And we would have been too careful, too conservative. We'd have been trying to make profit too soon instead of going, you know what? quality thing over there. Exactly. Instead, let's just focus on unimpeachable quality, but let's also make small decisions. By not having that commercial voice too early, we built a lot of things into our business that were about quality, not quantity intimacy, not scale. And that, I think, built this strength of relationship to this day. You know, we'll post things about our our business and our customers love to read the depth. They love the humanity. They love the realness, the authenticity. The Christmas pudding story. Exactly. And we've modeled that, this sense of this is our little family business and we want you to be part of the family. And the family is now pretty big, but we've built that heart. And I think not having that commercial edge too soon helped with that. I think we then hit an inflection point where the lack of that commercial rigor probably meant we were under-investing in our growth. Because yeah. as you know, there comes a point where it's less about saying we need to you know, be careful of cost and we need to make sure we make a little bit of EBIT this year. It's more, we need to invest to grow and we need to get confident that that investment is going to lead to that return. And so we need that pressure, that positive pressure from a commercial voice. I think that changed the dynamic and that was probably part of that growing up. I think where there's always been a healthy tension in terms of working styles and ways that we communicate and we get on really well, and that has helped us manage those tensions. I think if I was trying to reflect on the learnings for a future business that was listening to this podcast and reading this book and going, okay, well, what can I take from it? It's how those slight tensions in terms of how you behave, how you carry yourself, how you show up, the language you use they can get magnified and lost in translation as your teams get bigger. And so as you, as three founders, are talking to each other less directly and more through your teams. Yeah. So you are directing someone, I'm directing someone else, that goes down the line. And then those guys can't reconcile it because Matt Stu didn't agree on this or Cameron and Stu didn't agree on that. But actually, had Matt and Stu talked about it, we'd have probably got to agreement within three minutes because I'd have said, oh my God, I completely agree. And he said, yeah, absolutely. That's the only thing. And apart from that, I think this is great. But as the team grew, that fluency, that shorthand, that intimacy between us as founders, inevitably you start to lose that. So I find that an interesting it's hard. thing it, to reflect on. It is really hard. And I see that in, in our business and you know, we're going through a conscious growth thing. I think when people talk about growth, so doing in the last few years that I've sort of come to the realization that actually when people say they're growing, it's not always organic growth. Sometimes it's like we are investing to grow kind of thing. There's an intention behind that and we're going to do this and this is going to result in that. And I think that, you know, navigating that change in your own leadership style and what that means for your leadership team, you do have to let some things go. It's a hard thing, you know, in trying to maintain, you know, you have to, you know, my business partner who's the the founder of the business says that, you know, you're going to get to a point where you can't wrap your arms right around everyone in the business and you need to let some of that go. But, you know, 
keep your eyes on the things which are really important to your business. Like what are the deal breakers and instill that. It's hard to keep it and it's hard to see those mistakes sometimes creeping in when I'm like, oh, could not, not right. Could not agree with you more. And I think you've sort of triggered me to sort of reflect on two things. And one is just this phrase. I remember it was the title of a book I read years ago. And it's just what got you here won't get you there. And it's just this important mantra for me to remind myself and to remind us not to keep relying on the strategies and tactics of the past, balanced with holding on to this sense of timelessness Mm. and to go, okay, in terms of our purpose, why we exist, why we create value, why we matter, in terms of our craft, what it is that we do to a differentiating standard, in terms of our commitment to experiences, in terms of our commitment to building community, what is the stuff that is fundamentally That's unaltered? our North Star, that, that doesn't change. Exactly. Balanced with what does our analysis tell us about how we should best apply those things now? Because probably what got us here isn't going to get us there. And yet a bunch of stuff is going to stay absolutely constant. And so I think both the ritual of reminding yourself of the things that are important to you, of that North Star, whether your your business, your organization talks the language of ambition and vision and behaviors, or whether it talks the language of purpose and craft, reciting that, rehearsing it, but also re-interrogating it regularly is so critical. And I think we're currently in a business landscape and perhaps it's the fatigue of, you know, three years of COVID affected world and counting that just feels so short of time and so short of the ability to pause and reflect that sometimes we're just doing without to thinking about either say, of those like, things. It's just, I often say I need to percolate on a decision and, you know, that whole thing of sleeping on it. And it's, I used to pride myself on being able to make a quick decision. I often go with my gut and I do believe the gut, but sometimes actually giving yourself some time as a reminder of, I actually want to say no to this. You know, like, the, you know, going back to reminding yourself of what's our North Star, you know, the quick decision. And it's hard because you say we're in such a landscape which is unpredictable. Nobody knows what the future is. You know, we're talking before this started about, you know, how do you forecast when you don't even know what's happening kind of thing. It's, yeah, I think holding on to that North Star is so important and constantly I don't know if it's for you, but I often ask myself, am I, is this still fun? Am I still enjoying this? Is this, you know, and I think fun is an interesting word for people, but I actually, that's actually a really important thing for me. I want to enjoy the people that I do things with and the work that we do, you know, like if it's not fun, what's, I mean, money is important. I'm not dismissing that. It's not all about fun, but you know, for me, that started to you know, really inform my decisions. It's that whole thing, if it's not a hell yes, let's just say no, it's fine to say no. Well, and I think that's a really important learning about culture. You know, we talk a lot at Four Pillars about joy. You know, Four Pillars is a brand that for all of its seriousness of focus on gin craft should also put a smile on your face. Because if we don't, then we're clearly doing something wrong. But if people internally aren't feeling that it's fun, if we're not smiling when we're community managing, if we're not smiling about the thought of the next limitation gym release, instead we're going, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to get through this work and this just feels overwhelming. Surely then you're going to be faking it out in the world. So we've got to make sure that the brand experience that we want to deliver outside is being mirrored by the culture and the vibe on the inside of the business. How do you keep your, to that point, I often think that that's about energetics, what energy you're giving out. How do you keep your energy levels 
on that. And I'm not talking about your routines of like, you know, I do this, this, and this, but, you know, keeping that vibe sort of high and that, you know, that requires quite a lot of self-leadership, I mm. think. I think you're right. It's probably not something I think about a lot. One of the things I do is I take every opportunity to tell the four pillars story. Yeah. I think there is something really powerful about the act of storytelling. It lifts you and it lifts people. You know, I've, I have long been a believer in, in corporate Australia and in corporate environments that there's not enough storytelling, that strategy, that values, they would live better as stories. Stories are more energizing. They energize the storyteller and they energize the people hearing the story being told. So I think that's one of the things I do. I never miss an opportunity to- It's a reminder too. It, it is. is. It's, it's a beautiful it's, reminder. It's a great of practice for yourself. Like you walk into a room and you say, well, why do we exist and why do we matter and how do we start and what are we trying to do? And you can feel yourself, two things. One, you can feel yourself being lifted and energized by that. It also can create these little moments of truth. You go, wow, we've not lived that for the last few weeks. Yeah, We've not been focused on that. And I'm telling this room as if it's true, but I don't think it has been true the last few Let's weeks. Go back how do that. we make it? Yeah. How do we make it true again? So there's a, you know, and you think about all these businesses and I'm sure you've had these conversations with clients and neither of us will name and shame anyone where they'll talk about, oh, we've lost a line of sight to the consumer. And you're like, oh, we've lost our sense of, and you're like, how did you do that? Like, what what were you doing? Were you just living in did you not consultant PowerPoints and spreadsheets? Like, how did you create, how did that distance appear, that gap appear between you? Does anyone care anymore? It's like, and it's also, you're saying this, can you honestly say that you care about product, the consumer, what you're doing anymore, because you may have lost that. And I think that, that goes back to that fun thing, the joy thing of like, if you've lost the love of it, that might be some feedback. A hundred percent. And I think this is, you know, I said there's a an absolutely profound moment in the history of Four Pillars, and it came very early on when we, Cameron had been making gin down the back of a winery in Warrandyte, a great mate of ours called Rob Dolan. Cameron was was running his winery at the time and he started to do a day a week on the gin. And Rob said, oh, look, you can have this space when you're still, we called us still Wilma after Cameron's late mum. He said, when Wilma turns up, you can put her there, start making gin. So we do that. We only opened once a year for the first two years on World Gin Day 2014 and World Gin Day 2015, the second Saturday in June. And we had queues down the street. It was unbelievable. And we're like, okay, if we were ever in any doubt that this brand needs a home, this brand needs a place, we have to do it. Cameron's driving home one day. He lives in Healesville and he sees a real estate agent standing outside of this timber shed. Hadn't got on the market yet. It never went on the market. We bought it pretty much sight unseen and we had very little money, but we turned it into this magical place and we started to, you know, we moved all distillation there. And to this day, all distillation is under that one roof. We built a little distillery door, a little you know gin-fueled cellar door experience. We invited people to sort of press their noses against the glass so that they could be drinking and tasting gin while watching us distill. When we took on some investment from our friends at Lion that allowed us to double the size of that facility, still everything is under that one four pillars roof, but everything is a little bit bigger and shinier and more beautiful. And where I'm going here is, Hopefully, the brand experience impact to that is obvious. We're hoping to get about 200,000 people a year through that space, having an unbelievable experience. It's priceless. But the bit that we never factored in was what that would do, not just to our culture and the feeling of the people who go to work every day at Four Pillars, what it would do to the town, although it has had this profound effect on Healesville and, and the surrounding area, but what it would do to us as leaders. I just have to go down to Healesville. I get the 6 a.m. down. 
I'll be having a coffee at about 8.40. And I just feel energized. Yeah. Cameron gets to live that every day. My equivalent when I've not been there has been reading the replies we get every time we send emails out, trawling through our social media feeds, getting involved, you know, really, I was sort of one of the key community managers for the first seven years of Four Pillars, fully getting involved when we rented a space in Surrey Hills and we built the the Four Pillars Laboratory so we'd have a brand home here. Stu would really go and spend every day working from there. So all of us as leaders and founders, we've stayed absolutely on the front line of where the brand is being experienced by our customers and the energy it gives you back, not just the feedback and the insight, but that sense of energy and connectedness for the brand is again, it's just irreplaceable. I love this, hearing your story, Matt, and how passionately you talk about it. And to be honest, even you were passionately talking about your career. And I think it's, you know, it's clearly you're an interesting person who's interested in what you do and that it's such a joy to speak to you and see, you know, hear your story. So thank you so much for being on Behind the Mind. Happy to be here. Time has flown. Thanks for listening to Behind the Mind. Subscribe if you'd like to hear more episodes. Connect with Meredith via email. Behind the Mind at becausexm.com.